It's been a bit of a journey we've been on, looking and following what the disciples got up to or things that happened to them, whilst, or at least as recorded by Matthew. Of course, starting with being called by Jesus and finishing then following Jesus' resurrection. They're then being told, go and make disciples of all nations. Before we come to the go part, though, I think there's a few interesting bits that we should actually take some comfort from in the first few verses of this chapter. It says, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Obviously, there's eleven of them because Judas um, has uh, betrayed Jesus and uh, he's then died. So there's eleven left. They've not yet selected Uh, uh, somebody to take his place and they go to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go and when they saw him they worshipped him that's a wonderful picture I can imagine that if you've been through the experiences they've been through and Jesus has died and then the excitement when he suddenly shows himself as we know it as Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday the nerves of that morning of the women going to the tomb and going Where is he? What's happened? They've stolen him. And then Jesus appearing and being completely shocked and overwhelmed by the whole thing. And then the women tell the disciples and the disciples go, what? No, no, no. And some of them rush down and then, oh, no, he is gone. And then gradually they all meet Jesus again as he's resurrected. And so then there's this time where they... Go up to the mountain. Jesus has obviously said to them, go up to the mountain. So they do. It seems to make sense. And they go up. And presumably you've only gone there if Jesus had told you to go there. I guess there might have been some around that have kind of gone, really? I haven't seen this Jesus. He's really come back to life again. I'm going to go up. But they worship him. Because I think if I'd seen somebody that had come back to life and I'd got the whole backstory, and I, you would. They'd be... And yet it says that some doubted. So even, even those people that had been around at the time of Jesus, because I've heard it said, oh, it would be so much, wouldn't it be easier to believe if you actually were around at the time of Jesus? Because you'd have got to see his miracles, perhaps even ask that question of that parable that confused you. But if we, if we saw miracles now... If, if they still happened like they seemed to when Jesus was walking the earth and, and Jesus is walking along and people just touch his garment and they're healed or he'd lay a hand on them or he'd, he'd say, oh, don't worry, your, your daughter's not dead. No, he's alri- she's already alive. But we'll, I'll come over anyway. And if that happened, I'm sure it'd be really easy to believe. And this passage says some still doubted. Some people still Doubted. And what's interesting, because it says, um, it doesn't say that it's anybody else. The passage only suggests that there were the 11 disciples who were there. It doesn't say the 11 disciples, some friends and some others all joined in. It just says the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, commentators who studied the scriptures and looked at the four different uh, tellings of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, 
they will, they'll say, oh, it probably means this. Or they probably just didn't, like if I was saying, yeah, me and some mates went up to a place. There might have been other people there, but I might not have mentioned them. There is that possibility, but we're not told that. We're just told that it's the 11 disciples. Those that have been with Jesus that whole time. They've dropped their fishing nets and followed him or stopped being a tax collector or dropped immediately whatever it was that they were doing. And they've, they've gone on this journey with Jesus. They've heard his teachings. They've seen the miracles. They've been part of that whole thing. They, they witness Judas going, what? No, I won't. I won't be the one that betrays. Surely not I. And then it happens. And then Peter being the one who denies him. and going, no, no, not me. And then he does. And seems to suggest that of those 11, some still doubted. After all of that, having been there. So I want to reassure you that if you ever have a moment where you think, hmm, just having a, I've got a bit of a doubt at the moment. I'm having an, that actually so did they. And they were there when it all happened. It's okay to have a doubt. It's okay to have a ponderance. And in some ways, I think having a doubt is the bit that causes us to ask questions, that actually causes us to deepen our faith. I think Thomas gets a raw deal by being nicknamed Doubting Thomas. Because actually, if you go back and you read through uh, the Gospels, we don't actually read a huge amount about individual disciples if you look at the 12 disciples you don't know a huge amount about them as individuals we of the the kind of three that were closer to Jesus we might learn a little bit of extra stuff for those that we know that they dropped their nets or they were a tax collector we know that we don't know about the others it doesn't say oh and somebody was a teacher and somebody else was a whatever car mechanic um it wouldn't have been it doesn't tell us They did a variety of things, but what we do know is they stopped what they were doing and they followed Jesus. But what we know about Thomas is there was was a bit just before uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem and before the crucifixion. There's a bit where um, Lazarus is unwell. It's before Lazarus has died. And a message comes to Jesus that he is unwell. And Jesus is concerned. Um, and, and need, wants to go over there. And they wait a while, but they, they end up going. And some of the other disciples go, no, we shouldn't. We, there's, we've heard that there's, there's some threats out against you. If we travel this way, it's not going to be safe. And Thomas is the one that says, wherever Jesus goes, I am prepared to go there. I'm prepared. If it's dangerous, I'm going. I, that doesn't matter to me. So... The fact that he's then called Doubting Tom, I think he's the one that wants the reassurance because he's in some ways gone, whilst you're all doubting at this moment about following Jesus, I'm prepared to do it. And then he doesn't get to see Jesus when everybody else does. And he just wants to go, do you know what? I've put my all into this. I have given everything and then it seems to have fallen apart and I didn't think it would. I, it's not that I doubt, but I I can't give my all again, because if I do, I know the brokenness that I feel right now. I need to make sure that when I see it, 
Yeah, it's absolutely what I was always hoping for. That I put my faith in when I travelled along that dangerous road. That when I left everything. But some still doubted. Occasionally, I have my moments. Maybe I won't when I'm fully qualified. I probably will, though. There's moments where I go, did that really happen like it says? Because some things are so incredible. And I think, really? Like that? So be reassured. It's okay to have a doubt. But then it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, not a little bit, not like, well, we divided it up. The Father gets some, the Holy Spirit gets another bit and I'll have the rest. It's not a three-way split. It's all authority. Jesus is God. I'm not going to try and explain the Trinity to you now. We've had interesting discussions about that at college and trying to work your head around it. It's confusing. God is God. There is one God and he is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is fully God. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is probably one of the most read, shared statements from the Bible in terms of what is the church supposed to be, what is Christians, what is our calling, what are we supposed to do? It's to go and make disciples of all nations and baptise them in the name. A few things that I'd like to point out. It doesn't say go and make converts. It says disciples. Not converts, disciples. See, converts, and there's a tendency if we think about converts to go, Right, you've said the prayer, you've said a prayer, you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, I'll move on now, next person. You've said the prayer, good, right, now I'll move on, right, you've said Jesus, good, next. And I can make a list and I can say, ah, we had a meeting. And all the 150 people put their names down and they all converted and they became Christians. In one sense, that's great. And I'd love it if that happened because I'd be able to go, okay, this is tangible and I can see and I can put a number on it. My grandfather was a Baptist minister, one of the reasons that I'd put off doing it. Because <laughs> I know what it's like for the family. And I've got a book that was passed on to me when somebody found it, long after he died. And it's a list of names from, uh, I think it was, they called them Crusades. And he'd gone over to Ireland or Northern Ireland, I forget where. And there'd been one of these crusades, they put up a big tent and they'd do their thing. And he had a list of names and it was all the people that had converted or made some sort of commitment. And then my grandfather would have moved on, he would have gone back to the church that he was the pastor of. And that's great. In one sense, that is great. I'm interested not just in that moment though. I'm interested in the what happens next. Or what was happening before. Because I've got a variety of friends. Some of whom are Christians. Some of whom are churchgoers. 
and possibly not Christians. Some of whom would say they're a Christian but are non-churchgoers. Some don't know anything about church at all. Some who don't know anything about Jesus at all. I know that's hard to believe because I'm a pastor and I should therefore have made sure that all of my friends know everything there is to know about Jesus. But we live in a society, in the past it was known as Christendom. It's one of the big words I've learned at college. That basically everyone went to church. Because that's what you did. Everyone went to church, therefore there's no, you don't need to do mission, you don't need to do evangelism, because everyone knows it already. Because they're all in church. So how do you, what do you do when someone's like, you could do evangelism, they come to church, well they're still doing it. We're now in what is becoming known as post-Christendom, or at least we're on our way there. We're actually, the vast majority of people in this country do not go to church. In some ways, I think it's a good thing. Not that they don't go to church, but that we're clearer about that. Because the people that do come to church are either, we know that they're either a Christian already, or actually they're genuinely interested and want to find out more. Not just going through the motions. Because there's nothing that says, come to church and just go through the motions. Because if if that was where your faith was at, our society today says, enjoy a lion. Watch the telly. Have a coffee. Do some sport. Go to relax somewhere, whatever it might be. We're in a time where actually people choose not to come. You know that. You've, people that have been here for many years will say, oh, we used to have so many people in the boys' brigade or the girls' brigade or the Sunday school. The numbers just aren't there anymore. No, people have got other things that they do. There isn't the state... There isn't an expectation from the wider world to go to church. A lot of people don't know anything about Jesus other than using his name in an inappropriate way. And therefore the starting point of discipleship isn't to say, you need Jesus, because they haven't got a clue who he is. The starting point for discipleship is to begin a conversation that might be around faith and belief. And they might take a little step in a direction towards Christianity. But Christianity at that point might not have been mentioned. Because actually their point is there is no God. I don't believe in one. believe in evolution. Why should I worry? And if the next step is maybe I'm wrong, then it's a step in the right direction. It's not a conversion. They're not a Christian. But they're a step in the right direction. Now, if I've got another friend who used to go to church um, and have kind of heard the Bible stories through Sunday school and they've maybe been in church a while, the way that I approach them and talk to them about faith and if I wanted to disciple them, it's going to be really different because they've already got a whole background knowledge that for some reason they've decided to leave behind. Or maybe they haven't left it behind. They've just got frustrated with the way that churches are. Or perhaps it was just one person in a church that, that said the wrong thing when they were going through a particularly hard time in their life. And they went, if that's how you respond to me as a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't, people are in different places. So to say, oh, right, we've got one strategy. 
we'll have a convert and that's the job done. No, we need to disciple people. And it doesn't stop at that moment. So there's the bit before the convert becoming a Christian. And some of you will say, I know the day, the hour, maybe even the minute that I became a Christian because this happened and I was at this thing and this is when it was. Others of you will say, I don't know because I was always in church and I never didn't believe. We're all, we all come to faith in Christ in different ways, at different times in our lives. But it's not just, right, now I've got you on this journey and I've moved you in the right direction. You didn't believe there was a God, then you thought there was, and then maybe the Christian God was the right one, but you kind of undenied, and now we're believing in Jesus and this is going well. Phew, you've accepted him. I'll stop. No, there's the next bit that says, well, this is now what it means. This, you've got part of the story. I'm really excited at this point. This, I want to celebrate this. And we might even have a baptism. But we then need to teach. Because it doesn't say, and after they've converted and you've baptised them, Leave them to it. It says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. If you were to go through the Gospels and find out what Jesus commanded, there's very few times where Jesus commands anything. He says to the disciples, come follow me. He's challenged on what is the greatest commandment. He says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. The second is like it and it's to love your neighbour as yourself. Everything else falls into place from those. The other thing that he says, is with communion. Whenever you break bread and drink wine, do this in remembrance of me. He says to do that. And then he says, go and make disciples and baptise them and, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. There's not too many commandments that Jesus gives, but he does do a lot of teaching. Um, and he kind of spins the whole way the world thinks on its head. The most challenging part of this passage. The most challenging part of this passage, because all of those things are fairly kind of clear, is that it says go. It doesn't say stay. Stay where you are. Do the things you're doing. Do the things you like doing. And then that will be it. And actually, if you go through all of the passages that we've looked at, if we were to go back through Matthew, from the moment Jesus says, come follow me, back in, we have his birth at the beginning of Matthew, it's about chapter 4. And he says, come follow me. There we go, chapter 4, verse 18. It wasn't that Jesus was in a temple or a synagogue or a church. Jesus was walking by a lake or by the sea. When he meets Matthew, he's not in a church or a synagogue or whatever it might be. He's, I think he's by a lake again, actually. Spends a lot of time by a lake. Sounds quite nice. He is out. He is outside of the four walls of his house. Not that he has one. He's outside the four walls of whatever meeting place it was. The miracles, the majority of them, do not take place in a synagogue. They take place outside. The majority of the teachings that we read about do not take place in a church or a synagogue or a temple. They take place outside, on a hillside, in a town centre, in a village. The majority of what Jesus does is outside of 
the religious institutions of his day. The majority of what the disciples do is outside of those things as well. You read through the letters that Paul writes and that others write. We read about Paul and he writes letters to the churches. The churches didn't look like this. It was groups of people gathering and the letter will have been passed around the community because the church is the people, not the building. When Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ and the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, son, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He wasn't saying, Peter, I'd like you to take some bricks and some stones and some mortar and build up a building. And on you, and you'll get buried in it, so it's actually on you. We don't take it that literally. But through the missionary work of Peter, he, Jesus, began the church. And it doesn't say, and Peter, I will grow your church. It's, I will grow, I will build my church. This isn't my church. This isn't your church. There's a debate that has been rumbling for quite some time and will continue for the next few weeks about the EU and whether we should be in it or not. And one of the parts of that debate is about sovereignty. We want our country back. Do you know what? It's not my country. I do not own the UK. I'm not going to tell you which way to vote, but it's not my country. It doesn't belong to me. I think that's a falsehood. For a time, I get to walk the streets and maybe the occasional hill and by a lake or whatever it might be. It's not mine. I get to enjoy it. This church building is not mine. It's not yours. We have a responsibility. We've been blessed. God has blessed us. And we've got things that other people in other parts of the world would long for. But it's not ours. We get to look after it for a while. Jesus tells us to go and to make disciples. Not to go and make converts, to make disciples. Which for me means that we, as a church, as individuals, as a community, should be doing more outside of these structures than we do in them. If we are to obey this great commission to go and make disciples. To say, actually, you might not think there is a God, but let's begin your journey that says maybe there is. Or you believe there is a God, but you're not sure which one's the right one. Let's help you out with that. You think you believe in the Christian God, but you don't like the structures of church. Well, that's understandable at times. 
let's help you out with that. And let's walk with you on that journey. Not because we want to fill the seats so that on Sundays we can come and gather and go, doing it right now, aren't we? And once we've got a certain number, we'll stop and go, right, we've hit a particular figure. They might not come here. Jesus talks about scattering seed on the ground. Some of it will fall on the good soil, great. Some of it won't. Some of it will get strangled by weeds. Some of it won't even start growing. We're called to go. To go. And one of the great things is, we haven't got to go very far for it to be all nations. Because all nations have come to us. I've got some friends that are originally from Zimbabwe. And they're a white couple. They did end up having to leave Zimbabwe. But in around, I met them in 1999 and from about 2000 onwards, their land started to be taken from them and people moved on. And lots of the people in a similar position to them, as they received threats and property was burned and it wasn't a very nice situation, some of you may remember it from news stories, they, rather than running away, said, okay, this has been in our family for a number of generations and this is difficult for us. However, we haven't got to go because we're getting a bit older now and it's harder to travel. Isn't it great that God is bringing the people to us and we can plant churches where we are rather than having to travel miles over dusty roads? People have come to us. In fact, you could probably ask Joe, um, but I know as I've spoken to friends and people I know from uh, different parts of Africa, different parts of South America, different parts of Asia, and they say, people, the missionaries that we hear about, they came and they planted churches and they did great works. And the church in those different parts of the world is growing. There's growth. There's like revival taking place in different parts of the world. And people are coming over here because they go, I want to find out. The roots of our faith comes from England, from missionaries of old. And we want to go. And they come and they're disappointed. They're disappointed because the faith that got planted, the seeds that have grown, they've all, they are growing over there, but they seem to be dying here. And they go, what, what's going on? What's happened? And I think part of what happened is we got caught up in that thing called Christendom. We got caught up, everyone went to church and we got our structures sorted out and some of us perhaps went, oh, I don't like the way that church does things and there's different denominations have cropped up because of particular belief or issue. And now we've got people coming from Nigeria, Ghana, South America, from the Caribbean, from Korea, planting churches in the UK that are growing. There's some that are claiming revival. I've been invited to go next, I think it's next week, to a meeting at the XL Centre in London. It's a huge place, I don't know if you've been there. Um, and it's this, uh, it, I've been invited by one of the local pastors from here who planted a church, Kingsborough Church, 
over in Hayes. Last year at this event, apparently, I mean, there were just thousands and thousands of people, and the Prime Minister was invited and went and spoke because it's such a significant-sized event. The traditional churches in the UK, we are at risk of disappearing because we've forgotten what it means to go. We've lost our confidence in the gospel. Jesus has got all authority in heaven and on earth. And with that authority, he says, go and he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I didn't become a minister because I thought, I want to be part of a dying organisation and don't know what I'm going to do in a few years' time when there's nothing left. I have a hope. I have a hope that places like Usley will be transformed. That people will turn to God. That they will come to faith. That they will be discipled. That we will see growth. Because we go. And when we go, we take with us something of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, by his Holy Spirit and in the name of the Father. There's been a picture on the screen of a pair of shoes, fairly worn out shoes by the looks of it. I found it on the internet. They look like they've been well worn. And you may have wondered why that picture has been the one that has been the picture for a series on discipleship. For me, that kind of tells me what discipleship is about. It's about journeying. It's about walking with Jesus. It's about walking with other people. And perhaps at times it's about walking in their shoes and not expecting them to walk in ours. Genuine disciples make disciples.